Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Patrick Campbell, the founder of ProfitWell. ProfitWell provides free subscription metric software to help you identify opportunities, and then tools to help you reduce churn, optimize pricing, and grow your subscription business end-to-end. We chat about how ProfitWell added a services layer on top of their software business that decreased churn and increased their customer lifetime value from $6,000 to 150 k We also discussed what companies get wrong when tackling churn, the steps required to nail your pricing strategy, the importance of value-based pricing, and what your value metric should look like. Patrick also shared what he would do to tackle churn when given the task starting a new company. This episode was priceless. I hope you enjoy it. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hey, Patrick. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Doing well, man. I am right now in Brazil, normally based in Boston, so I'm enjoying some some basically summer weather down here, which is great. Very nice. What are you doing in Brazil at the moment? I was here for a, a SaaS a subscription conference. Um, yeah, the, the market down here is like really fascinating. I, I didn't know a lot about it until late last year, but it's kind of, uh, you know, because the Brazil market is large enough to support companies, a lot of them are, um, you know, like flourishing in Brazil and they're kind of almost siloed away from the rest of the world. And so it's, it's one of those things where it's kind of a cool thing where they're all kind of now thinking globally once they reach a certain stage. And so it's just kind of amazing to, to be in a market where you're like, oh, wow, like you guys are a lot further advanced than a lot of people think. It's just because you're not selling outside. So it's I'm cool sorry. to learn. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, yourself, you probably know, have sitting on one of the most amounts of subscription data out there Um, for the audience as well. um, Patrick is the CEO and founder of ProfitWell. They offer a free metrics uh, tool, basically giving you all the reporting, foundational reporting you need for your subscription business. Uh, Patrick, maybe you just want to talk us through a little bit about ProfitWell and what it is you do and then how you took the transition from, I know initially you started as a consulting business with Price Intelligently and transitioned then into what is today ProfitWell. Yeah, totally. So ProfitWell, as you mentioned, it's a free subscription financial metrics product. So um, you plug it into your billing system, Stripe, Braintree, Zora, whatever you're using and get access to your churn, your cohorts, your uh, MRR, all of the main metrics you need. And uh, then, you know, kind of the way that we make money is we sell a couple of different products. Um, one is a, a pricing product um, 
it's a, it's called a tech enabled service. So it's, it's software, but there's also a service element to it, uh, mainly because pricing is something that people tend to need a lot of handholding um, for it. And we originally, as you kind of alluded to, we started off as price intelligently. What a lot of people don't know is it was a pure software product out of the gate. Um, you know, but we added the people into it because all of a sudden we found that, like I said, you know, people needed, needed some, some help with the confidence of making a pricing change. And so that was something that, that kind of helped fuel our, our transition there. But we also have some other products. One is called Retain, um, which, you know, as the name suggests, is, is very, very rooted to um, reducing churn. Um, and helping with retention. And the way that we do that is we attack credit card delinquencies. So these are credit card failure. And then in addition to that, we're now starting to go after voluntary churn um, in the mechanical way, which is working out really, really well so far. Um, and then we have like an accounting product um, as well. But the, the kind of TLDR summary is we're squarely focused on the subscription and SaaS market. And um, we want to understand, you know, subscription growth better than anyone else and then kind of deploy that understanding into products that, that help people. Very interesting. Um, I, I wanted to touch, like get started a little bit about talking about pricing. Obviously, uh, you have a wealth of knowledge in this space and uh, pricing is one of those that has it's one of those most important growth levers that you can pull and has the ability to impact almost every metric when it comes to lifetime value of your customer, the acquisition costs, looking at ARPU and even churn itself. You mentioned you started out with software and people just couldn't figure it out, so you had to bring in hands-on. So what led you to that conclusion and why did you do it? Yeah, so I think, um, so those are those are two really good questions. So the conclusion that we found was that, I mean, it's it's kind of apropos to this this show and this topic was we, our churn was really high. Um, so we, we would have, we had this tool where you could go collect data um, and then our algorithms were baked into that data um, that allowed you to kind of figure out things like price elasticity and relative preference. Um, I know you led pricing up at Hapjar, so you kind of know what that output looks like at this point. But we, we had that tool and then um, all of a sudden, like what we found was people would use the tool, they would get value, but they wouldn't implement the findings. And when we started digging in on that, is we discovered that basically it wasn't that people had trouble interpreting the findings, uh, but there was just trouble in people essentially understanding or having the confidence to actually implement those findings because pricing is one of those things that, you know, we all know it's kind of important. We all know that we don't know enough as we should on it, but it's one of those things where we're not ready to like, you know, risk our neck as they say on like, you know, making a decision on it and then potentially going wrong. And so with that understanding, as well as with the fact that, you know, collecting data, it's a little bit cumbersome. It's not automatic. Like you have to go out, you have to collect the data, you have to massage the data, you have to do everything. Um, we basically were like, cool, like, well, you know, where we asked, where we were asked basically, hey, would you do this for us? And would you help us? And, you know, we initially were like, no, I don't know. Like, you know, everyone says don't do services, that type of stuff. Yeah. But then the numbers that they were coming back with were so high that we were like, oh, interesting. So we can act like a software company in the sense of like the software is there, our operations are really good, all that kind of stuff. But we can kind of demand almost consulting type prices. And so all of a sudden our LTV went from like $600 to like $150,000. And wow. it was one of those things where, I mean, it, it didn't happen like instantly, yeah. but it was one of those things where we learned 
we were like, okay. And, and so over time, what we've done is we've done more and more software and it's all on the back end. So to our customers, it, it feels as if, um, and this is a blessing and a curse, it feels a little bit more consulting heavy, but in actuality, <clears throat> our margins are, you know, 78% like software. Um, it is uh, something where we're able to scale and we're able to have demand like a very, very high LTV. And over time, we're going to continue to build um, based on all these learnings, we're going to build products that look like retain or look like ProfitWell metrics that are kind of like touchless products. But right now it's allowing us to fuel the business because we're, we're a bootstrap business. So we haven't raised any funding. Um, and so that all of that, you know, profit quote unquote, just basically goes right back into the business. And I think this is a, um, this is a good lesson to answer your other question, which is, and, and I think I have a better answer for your question, but this one's related to this is that I think a lot of people, um, they get a little bit dogmatic and religious about the wrong things when it comes to churn. I think that they, you know, for instance, um, so we've noticed some churn problems with now our pricing product, which is an annual product. So you pay on an annual basis, um, you pay monthly, but you, you're on an annual term, it's a subscription. The issue is, is that with some companies, um, they, they just don't get it. Um, and we're not doing as good of a job as we could be in helping them get it and helping them implement. And some of it's out of our control because it's internally at the company, like office politics, these types of things, which is really hard for us to manage, right? Yeah. And so with that, we were like, okay, interesting. Like, what if we went and visited every single one of our, you know, one of our companies that we worked with, right? So we started this, this, you know, um, this experiment just this year where we're basically like getting on the ground, going to their office, making sure all of the important people are there, recognizing people who are, we call them the Darth Vader's, who are kind of the disagreeable folks that we can specifically, you know, handhold them and understand when their objections are going to come. But basically we're, we're doing these things that don't, or that appear not to scale. Yeah. Um, and we're baking those costs basically directly into our, our pricing. It's kind of like, you know, e-commerce free shipping. Like it's never actually free shipping. They just bake it into the price. And that's basically what we're doing is like, oh yeah, we're going to come visit you. And we're going to handhold you. And, it, and so far it's been really, really good for renewals and things like that. And so that, that's the mistake I think a lot of people make is they're like, well, we can't do this. We can't do that. Well, well why not? Like if it's going to reduce or increase the numbers that you're trying to reduce or increase, then you should learn about it. Now there's a, there's a chance that we are like, oh, this is way too expensive. It puts too much load on our business. But in actuality, I think it's going to actually really, really help. And I think, like you said, maybe in some aspects, it's a little bit counterintuitive moving towards the service base when you're building software. But I think, and on the flip side, though, it's almost like you have this continuous customer development and customers really feeding what you'd be building in the different types of services. Like you say, uh, the retain and revenue recognition has come as a result of the knowledge and experience you've had working directly with your customers. I really love that. Yeah. Hundred uh, percent. Getting getting paid to be do your customer development is probably like the number one thing you can do, especially in an early stage. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about uh, price intelligence. As you mentioned, I led up the pricing research uh, with PI uh, at Hotjar, and uh, there's a certain methodology that you run through, and you, uh, the way that price intelligently works is you work in sprints, uh, and each sprint uh, is to try and understand a certain aspect of pricing, whether it be who the ideal customer persona is that you're going after, what the pricing and packaging should look like, um, and then what the pricing itself should be as well. Uh, maybe you just want to talk us a little bit about through this methodology, Patrick, and how you came about it as well. 
Yeah, that's a good question. I think for us, <clears throat> it really evolved from handling the pricing problem in, in general. And so in any business, you have this, you know, this fairly ambiguous large problem that you're trying to solve, right? Like reducing churn, um, optimizing pricing, um, getting growth, right? Like that's kind of where you start. And then when you start to break down that problem, you basically need to, to attack, right? So for growth, there's, you know, so many different vectors there. For pricing, there's a little bit less vectors, but they typically have higher impact. And then same thing for retention, right? And so for us, we kind of started off with, hey, we're going to solve your pricing, which is like the most ambiguous, you know, kind of thing to sell, right? And it yeah. caused like these very, very big um, research kind of snafus that I would say, um, where it was like, you know, we, we just weren't focused enough, right? And so then it started to come become like, okay, well, if we were going to like solve pricing at a company, like what are all of the steps, right? So the first thing you need is you have to understand your buyer personas and not just like, you know, the generic buyer personas of HubSpot and Marketo, but like, you know, specific quantified buyer personas, um, including jobs to be done information, like all that kind of stuff. Next up, you know, identifying your value metric. Um, next up, making sure your packaging is right. Next up, the actual price point. So all of a sudden, we start to break down pricing into these different pieces, these different buckets. And every company we work with is, is you know, a, a little bit different on where they are on the threshold. Like some people, they have really good research. They understand research, all these different things. And they're bringing us in for extra bandwidth, extra expertise, et cetera. Other people, they have no idea what they're doing, right? They just have never, you know, they've never tackled this. And so with us, it becomes, okay, cool. Like we're going to break this problem down and we're going to make sure that you can actually implement these things. Because if you don't implement the things that we're talking about, like this isn't really that useful, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of how that evolved into, you know, understanding. And then we looked at, okay, we were doing these one-time type, you know, almost projects, right, with our software. And people would come back for multiple projects, but we ran into like a problem where, oh, cool, here's all this data, thanks. And people would want help implementing it. And we weren't really incentivized to help them implement because we were sitting there and we were like, well, we're technically not getting paid to help you. Like we wouldn't say that, but like, that's, you know, basically what, what was happening. But also if you don't implement this, like, and, and we didn't have any control either. So it wasn't like, oh, cool. Like we can help you or, oh, cool. Like, you know, let's get on the phone with John and like talk through X, Y, Z. Instead it was, you know, emails here and there. And then those emails weren't the highest priority because we had other like paying customers that we were trying to deal with at that point. And so that's what kind of pushed us to move to the subscription model where it's like, okay, people are paying on the subscription basis. We've structured things on how they work. And then all of a sudden we're looking at it and we're saying, okay, interesting. Like now we have a relationship baked into how people are paying us. And we're sitting there as, you know, not necessarily an equal member of the team, but like a member of the team and can either be very reactive if that's the type of customer we're working with or extremely proactive if that's the type of customer we're with so we can you know, get the job that's supposed to be done done with that company very nice. interesting you mentioned as well and you touched on a topic i think uh, that a lot of companies tend to get wrong as well and when it comes to the value metric and there's a line i think on your website now at the moment which i actually loved when i read it earlier was uh, let's be honest, you guessed it. And I think this is typically the approach that most startups take when getting their pricing set up. It's normally just sort of uh, taking a look at a few other companies out there, comparable, seeing what they charge and just slapping a number on and seeing how it goes. 
Um, maybe you want to talk us through the concept of value metric and why it's so crucial when it comes to pricing your product. Yeah, hundred percent. This is, this is exactly when I said, Hey, I have a better answer for the mistake people make with churn and yeah. pricing. This is, this is the better answer, which is value metric. So a value metric is what you charge for. It's your per user per hundred visits per thousand widgets, what's it's whatever your, your product is. And the reason the value metric is so important for what I would argue, basically acquisition, monetization and retention is because even if you get the price point kind of wrong, like you're undercharging or overcharging a bit, like depending on what it is, your value metric will save like your entire pricing strategy. And the reason for that is when you're using a value metric, you're basically charging along that value that you're providing that user. And if you've identified that somewhat correctly, what ends up happening is as a user wants more or is using more, AKA getting more value out of the product, they end up paying you more. And then if they start using less, then they end up paying you less, but they're not churning, right? Um, and that's where it, it becomes super, super powerful because this also provides you like, you know, potentially thousands of entry points because everyone is paying kind of where they need on the entry point of your product. Now, it's not always the case if you kind of batch value metrics, meaning, hey, this is the tier for 100 to 500 visits. This is the tier for 501 to 1,000 visits, et cetera. But it is something that's super, super powerful. And, and what we found is that those companies that are utilizing value metric-based pricing versus um, feature-based pricing, they're typically growing at about double the rate. And that's because their churn rates are about half of those who are feature-based pricing. And also their expansion revenue is, I think, two to two and a half X that of the feature-based pricing folks as well. And so I think that's probably like if there's one silver bullet when it comes to pricing, um, or at least something that's super, super helpful for both pricing and churn, it, it really is that value metric. Is getting to that. So talk us a little bit through that then and how a company would actually go out and figure out what that value metric should be. What would the typical process look like? Yeah. And so I, I think that the process is, First, you have to think of what's your perfect value metric. And what I mean by perfect value metric is like, if you could perfectly measure it, make sure that the customer understands and agrees to it, et cetera, like that's your perfect value metric. And so for most of us, that's especially in B2B, it's making more, making your customer more money, more revenue, or um, reducing their costs or reducing their time. Um, in you know the world of B2C, maybe it's like, making them fitter if you're a fitness product or it's, you know, helping them lose weight if you're a fitness product or it's, you know, giving them something to do with their time or, or something, right? Now, all of those can't be perfectly measured, right? There are some products that that's, that's where you stop. So we have this product called Retain, like I mentioned, we charge based on how much money we recover. Um, so we have tiers and based on how much we recover, there's, you know, it fits into those tiers. And that's like a, a very pure value metric because, all of a sudden people are like, oh, cool. Like I, I only get charged if you make me more money. And we're like, yep. And they go, oh, okay, that makes sense, right? Um, now for others, like let's just talk about like HubSpot, for example, a marketing automation product. Like they can't really charge based on money or revenue because it's like one of those things where it's like, well, that blog post definitely made us money, but I don't know, like was HubSpot 30% responsible for it because I wrote the blog post, but they hosted it? Or are they 70% because they have all this marketing automation? Like it's really hard to determine like who, who is the, the, the main winner of that particular revenue, right? 
And so what you do is you then take a step back and look at what are the proxies for the value metric. So in HubSpot's case, they can't charge based on revenue quite yet. Maybe one day they will. But now what they can do is they can say, well, contacts or visits or users or a bunch of those different things can be proxies for that revenue. And what you can do then is once you've kind of determined those viable proxies and you really want to kind of push yourself a little bit because some people you'll say, oh, that will that'll never work. Well, it's like, let's let's get some data on it. But let's say you found those five or six proxies. Then I would go out to a user base or a target user base um, or market panelists. If you, and these are people you can pay to get research from um, if you don't have any users right now. And I would basically use some of the methodologies that, that we've developed, um, you know, asking relative preference questions, meaning, you know, hey, when it comes to, you know, HubSpot's pricing, what is the most preferred? What is the least preferred? And then show them the different options, pricing based on contacts, pricing based on X, pricing based on Y, et cetera. And then I would collect some other data around, you know, the willingness to pay based on value metric and even what the distribution of that value metric is currently amongst my base. So how many people have a thousand contacts? How many people have 5,000 contacts, et cetera. But when I have all that data, normally for most companies, the, the value metric is kind of staring you in the face. Um, you know, it's not something that's too complicated, but that allows you to kind of implement that value metric and, and get kind of all the benefits of the value metric down, down the line. Very interesting. Uh, and it's approached as well that we took similarly at Hotron, definitely it has a lot of value in the understanding really is aligning the value that you give to your customers with the, the amount that you pay. You touched as well that it is really, really powerful as well for um, expansion revenue and contraction at the same time. So I think a really good example of value-based pricing actually is Slack. And I know in one of your pricing page teardowns, you actually took a look at Slack. Maybe you want to just talk us through what the beauty is in Slack's pricing. Yeah, yeah, that's a great, great question. I think Slack, um, Slack has nailed it. I, I don't know if they really consciously like you know nailed it. Like I think they they might have lucked into it, but I want to give them all credit, mainly because of that value metric for you know the number of, of messages that you can search through. So basically, Slack was like, I don't want to go after like ten dollars per month type customers. I I, I want to keep them free essentially until they're gonna be worth hundreds of dollars per month in terms of customers. And I think that one, that's really, really something novel that they've done. Um, I don't know if it's that novel, but it's just really something that was really, really good because once you reach like 15 team members inside Slack and all of a sudden you're trying to search back in the history of something that was said or find a document that was shared, you, you need to sign up for a paid plan. And I think that was really, really good for them. And then if you notice their tiers, they also kind of upgrade, like once you upgrade, all of a sudden you'll get into like much, much higher tiers. But the only reason that you'll upgrade is probably because of, you know, compliance things and things like that. So I think they're, they're a really, really good example of persona pricing fit. I think another example would be like HubSpot, which I mentioned before. I think they did really, really well with the contacts element, um, particularly they were kind of, I don't know if they were the first to do that in the marketing automation space, but they definitely brought it forward. And I think that what they did really, really well as, as well is because they were dealing with such fragmented types of users, they took and, and moved forward on 
um, basically implementing a way that the main value metric was context, but then you'll notice they have like secondary value metrics or secondary things where like, for example, in the lowest tier, you can only get like two or three users. And then the next tiers you get unlimited users, but that just kind of protects from what I call backsliding um, downgrades where people are basically like, well, I don't have as many contacts, so I'm just gonna stay in this tier. Uh, but oh, I need more users, so I, I can I can afford more users, so I might as well jump up to this next tier. So, yeah, I think those you know those are those are really 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 um, you know really important pieces of of a pricing strategy, especially when you're using value metric. Yeah, absolutely. And as an end user as well, I think you really really appreciate it on the on both sides. So, uh, as you grow, you do see more value, and you're more willing to pay. But then I think as well, Slack really nailed it again was with their fair pricing model as well. So, if a user became deactive, they'd actually give you credits towards your account because you weren't extracting that value. Um, so, I mentioned earlier as well. Obviously, you're sitting on a lot of data, and you touched as well on Slack's um, model of not really wanting to go after ten dollars customers and trying to keep it for free as long as possible. Looking at the subscription data that you're sitting on at the moment, do you see software uh, slowly declining, and eventually, do you think like software itself will have uh, a value to people? Uh, I know there's obviously been certain blog posts that have been circulating now lately as well that uh, is. Uh, SaaS and is software moving and trending towards zero and premium? Yeah, I think that I, I would say yes. And and we have a lot of data to support this. And the reason is, is because, and this is pretty intuitive and it kind of happens in most markets. Like if you think about like software 15 years ago, right? It was a lot harder to build. So the prices that you could demand, you know, were higher because there was just like this weird supply demand like situation and the basically the demand for it kept going up but the supply kind of stayed down because there just wasn't as much you know competition out there and then today as as everyone listening probably knows like we're living in a world where it's like hey if you and i wanted to start a software company we could probably spin up a server and have a website up by the end of this call and i know that sounds ridiculous but that, that's the world we live in it probably wouldn't be a great product yeah. probably wouldn't be a great great you know landing page but you know the, the yeah but the barrier wouldn't you know isn't, isn't there as much and so because of that you are living in a world where you know the average number of competitors that you would have in your first year of business like five or six years ago was like two or three um, average number of competitors today is in the double digits so if we started a, a product today um, it's most likely that it would have about 10 to 12 competitors just right out of the gate. And because of this, essentially, like consumers are getting, you know, the, the, the best um, part of this because there's so much competition and all of a sudden, like the willingness to pay is kind of dropping because, you know, it used to be like, oh my God, you can give me so much productivity from this pen and paper. Amazing. But now it's like, well, I get all this productivity from all this other stuff. So like software isn't as magical. And I think because of that competition, CAC has increased substantially. CAC's up about 70% compared to five years ago, and this is blended, but it's consistent with content, paid, all these different you know channels that you have. And because of that, I think freemium is really where a lot of companies are going to end up going just out of necessity. And, and it's, it's not necessarily going to be a free element of their product meaning like, you know, a hot jar free plan um, or a Slack free plan, which, you know, th that exists obviously, but there's, there's going to be an element of like, oh, maybe we start a side app that's like a marketing reports product, right? 
that you know you can connect all of the important things and all of a sudden we're getting a bunch of marketers that we can then sell hot jar to right um that's that's kind of what we're li living in is there might be these tangential products that attract the same type of buyer but then you know that that list is used to sell the main product to um and we've noticed some actually really big benefits of freemium as well especially in the context so um customers who convert from free Typically, their acquisition costs are, I think it's like 30% lower than customers who convert from like a cold start. Um, retention is typically about 15% higher for those customers who convert from free. Um, and NPS is actually double for those customers who convert from free. And, and the main reason for this is that those customers are basically converting on their own terms. Um, they're the ones who are basically like, you know, they, they didn't get forced to upgrade or they didn't get forced to convert. They were basically, you know, held and nurtured until all of a sudden they were ready to convert, which I think is, is a big benefit of free overall. But I will say like, given all those benefits, you shouldn't rush into free. Um, free is very much like a nuanced style. Um, you either need someone who is like a true growth hacker um, someone who's really, really good at free acquisition, um, if you're going to go free from from out of the gate, or I would recommend waiting till you're like three, four years into your business where you understand how to convert your customers and then just need to open up the top of the funnel. Um, I think eventually I'll say like, and this might be 10 years from now, I'll say like, hey, you, you have to start with free. But at least for now, I don't think, uh, you know, starting with free unless you have some of those exceptions makes a ton of sense. And as you mentioned, I mean, you, it speaks a lot to it as well in terms of the numbers and retention and churn uh, and really just getting that customer and onboarding that customer when they're actually ready for your product as well. A lot of the times as well, when it's free, like it, the low barrier to entry allows you to acquire customers a lot faster, but they're not sort of forcing them after 15 days to start paying when they perhaps haven't really perceived the value that you're receiving, that they should be receiving from your product yet and end up churning like a month or two later. Yeah. Exactly. I think free trials, free trials are really tough. Like I, I think free trials are more industry dependent. Um, but yeah, cause, cause in most cases, like a free trial, you might as well just make it free. And the yeah. reason for that is like, if you think about most products, it's like, just give them up to a certain amount for free. And that acts basically as a free trial, like give them, you know, a hundred email opens, give them a thousand visits. And then if they're below that, well, they, you know, you're not forcing them to upgrade to something. And if they're above that, they're probably more than happy to convert. Yeah. And, and I think as well, the free trials will typically, it goes back to that, like aligning with the personas as well. And a lot of the times as well, what you tend to see is like these 15-day trials or 30-day trials typically aren't long enough for bigger customers, sort of the enterprise that you're wanting to be go after. And then they're not ideally suited as well to like the very small business or SMBs who potentially would be better off starting off free and then growing into your product as well. I totally agree with that. Touching on the topic of churn as well, and um, you've done one of probably one of the biggest reports when it comes to churn uh, itself. Uh, and I know a couple of others have recommended this as a resource uh, on this podcast previously as well. Um, maybe you want to talk us through some of the findings. So I, I just, you can find this as well on Profit Wells uh, site, but like some of the things that you came out from the study was, I know one of the first ones was larger companies tend to see 15 to 30% uh, lower churn or companies with low ARPU have two to three times more churn itself. Out of the study for yourself, what would you say was one of the most surprising metrics that came out and uh, like sort of uh, had a wow moment for you? Yeah, that's a really good question. Because I think some of the things that we found are, 
like maybe Pretty they weren't as yeah like they, they were probably like oh oh yeah that makes sense you know like you don't you don't necessarily realize it right it's kind of like inventing uber all of us we look at it and we're like oh press a button get a car like that seems yeah. super obvious but once it exists you're like oh my god so i think like the, the arpu finding i thought was pretty interesting right Be not necessarily because it doesn't seem intuitive but because of the degree right and and so i think that was interesting you know higher arpu companies have lower churn and that just typically happens because you know there's a longer sales cycle so people need to determine you know if they're a good fit they take themselves out normally in the sales cycle if they're not a good fit and then there's like high customer success and things like that I think some of the other things, um, one of them, which is why we started a product, our, our retained product started here, was just how high um, credit card failures accounted for churn. So just to give you a perspective, like for every 10 customers um, that churn, two to four of them are because of um, credit card failures. So it's basically for a credit card based company, it's the largest like single bucket of churn. And so that was really surprising not because <clears throat> we didn't think it was a problem, but because like the gravity of the problem was super interesting. Um, I think some of the other ones that were kind of maybe not shocking, but like were super kind of intuitive um, things like the, um, you know, the annuals, the more annuals you have, the lower your churn, which I think was really cool. Um, and it was like almost like a perfect correlation, which was really interesting. Um, and then one of the other ones I thought was really, really kind of fascinating was that, um, Funded companies, basically those who have raised funding, typically have much um, higher churn than those companies that aren't funded. Um, and this this was kind of funny because you wouldn't necessarily expect that, especially at different stages, different ARPUs, um, et cetera. But that was that was something that was really really kind of fascinating. Why do you think that is, though? Now that you've had a chance to think about it, and yeah, I think it's just because there's a moral hazard, you know, with funding. So like. Basically, you're just like, oh, cool. Like, I'm just going to go spend all this money. And then you end up spending it on not so great marketing channels and you spend it on, you know, just not so great like tactics. And you're so focused on uh, top of the funnel growth because that's what's going to get you to your next round. That basically what ends up happening is you, you get a lot of bad customers or you get just the wrong customers. And I think when you're, you know, bootstrap, you have to be a little bit more thoughtful about that. Um, or at least you you don't survive if you're if you if you like don't figure out churn right yeah so yeah I think that's something that's interesting and and I think it's I mean this is where you you know they they don't happen all the time but there's plenty of stories of like companies that oh that company's shutting down like what they raised twenty five million and it didn't seem like they were suffering but it's like oh their churn was terrible right um, yeah so it's something that's super tough. Yeah, uh, I think it, it's really interesting, actually, because I tried as well recently to approach one or two VCs to come on the show uh, early stage. And their responses well shocked me a little bit in the sense that uh, what they said was it's more of an operational metric and it's not something they typically look at uh, in their businesses. Um, and from our previous perspective, I thought it was like one of the main metrics that VCs would be tentatively looking at, but maybe at the earlier stage as well, it's less of a focus and it's more when it comes to sort of like your series A or B uh, where it really starts to matter uh, for most VCs. And then again, for where it really starts to count for most venture-backed companies as well. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, cool. So you, you mentioned as well then Retain itself, like um, you have a product now that helps and typically like 
20 to 40 percent of overall churn uh, comes from delinquent churn. Um, and delinquent churn as well, like a lot of the time it's, it's involuntary or most of the time it's involuntary. Uh, how do you distinguish as well then between active churn and then delinquent involuntary churn? Yeah, basically, I mean, I, th I think you kind of hit it there, um, you know, subtly. It's, it's, it's involuntary churn is essentially when, you know, someone um, has uh, essentially a, a credit card or a payment failure, right? Um, now, some involuntary churn is, is technically voluntary churn because there are some people who it's typically like one to two out of ten who will essentially um, use the credit card failure as an excuse as to why they are um, going to, to no longer use the product. But for most of those folks, eight out of 10 of them, it's, it's just because you know, of forgotten X, Y, Z. Now on the voluntary churn side, it's basically anyone who is actively choosing to cancel your product. And that in turn, it could be for a whole host of reasons. It could be because of, um, you know, uh, they didn't get enough value out of it. They didn't have enough time to see what's going on with it. They haven't, you know, set something up. They didn't like a support or sales experience. Um, you know, they're going out of business. There's a whole, there's just so many different pieces of um, why a customer would fail. And there's just so many things you can do in order to, you know, kind of lower lower that that potential churn. I think one of the things that a lot of people miss out on, and this is one of the first features that we came out with, um, you know, is, is basically upgrade to annual. So having people get on an annual plan, which typically has, um, depending on the ARPU, like, you know, could be up to half of, of lower churn um, than, you know, people being on a monthly plan, essentially. So, yeah, I think it's there's a lot of little tactical things you can do to kind of solve that that retention. But I think it's one of those things where like understanding the difference is super important. And then, like we kind of alluded to before, then breaking down that particular you know th that that big problem into a bunch of different parts and kind of attacking it in in that particular manner. You might have already answered my next question then with this, but. Um... Let's imagine a scenario now, you, you walk into a new company and uh, you've seen that the retention numbers are pretty low, like churn is, is quite terrible. Uh, it's your first month there. What are some of the first things you do when you get to this company to help turn things around? Yeah, so I, I think um, <clears throat> like the first two weeks, as long as I have this autonomy, I would um, just get a basic proper flow for delinquent churn. Um, I mean, I, I probably would implement retain, shameless plug, but I would, um, you know, I, if, if, if for some reason I'm not going to use that, I would, I would get a, I would treat it like a marketing channel and just get really, really basic flows in app messaging. Um, make sure my, my settings inside my billing and, and payment processor are set up correctly, that type of thing. And that, that typically doesn't take a long time. Um, I would then um, put in some marketing flows essentially for upgrading people to annual payments. So after they've been with the product for three months or based on some sort of usage, um, that's when I would reach out to them to, to handle that. Um, and then there, there's a couple of other mechanical things that I think I would do. Um, but I think the most important thing I would make sure I do in those first two weeks is put together a basic survey on, you know, what was the biggest reason that you canceled um, product X and what was like the smallest or little reason that why you canceled product X, I would send that to all of my canceled customers. 
um, and and basically start to get some data. And then I would leave like an open-ended box, like, hey, tell me more. And then based on that, what I would do is basically start to understand, um, you know, what that would look like um, and, and start to kind of dive deeper in on like, there's probably gonna be something that's rather obvious, um, especially when you start to segment that data and qualitatively get on the phone with folks. Um, like, there's probably something where you're gonna identify problems in the onboarding. And so, like, then you're gonna have to start redoing onboarding. And then there's probably gonna be like a, maybe like a, you know, a main feature that is covered by a lot of things. Like, hey, we don't have this main thing, but then there's probably like a, a long tail list of like, oh, here's a bunch of features that we don't have that people want. And so that's then when I would work with the product team, I probably am on the product team if I'm handling churn. Um, and then I would work to like, see how we can fit those things into the roadmap, especially if churn's like a really, really big problem, as you said. And, and then it's just like a cycle. Like, it's just like understanding, cause then you're gonna discover, oh, like, you know, we're targeting the wrong customers. So now I gotta talk to the growth team and I have to figure out like, hey, um, customers who, you know, use the Salesforce integration, their retention is twice as much as the customers who don't use the Salesforce integration. Let's get more Salesforce integration people or let's go to the base who has a Salesforce integration and get them to hook up Salesforce, right? So there's just all these different things. And I, I think you have to be almost like a detective and start like thinking about figuring stuff out and using both your instincts and your data to kind of really start to break down all of those different paper cuts of, of what's going on, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think like what you're alluding to is also almost like a never-ending process as well. And it's something that involves uh, different aspects of the company and different stages. Uh, and with that, I think maybe this is a good draw and a good end to the show. Uh, Patrick, it's been a pleasure having you today. Um, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely, man. And if there's anything I can do to be helpful, just let me know. Great. Thank you very much. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.